The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're here at Albury Airport, and uh, we're at uh, Has Air with Steve Deeth. Hi, Steve. G'day, Dave and James. Uh, you've got a rather interesting collection of aircraft here. We have at the moment. You've come on the right day. We've got uh, our T-6 is out the front, getting ready to go to, to Tamora this weekend yep. for the Warbirds Down Under show. Uh, we've got our T-28 in the back of the hangar undergoing its annual inspection and we've just been over and had a look at the uh, Focke-Wulf 190 that's in one of the other hangars that we've been uh, working on for the last six months and uh, test flew la- or flew last week with uh, a German test pilot came out and did the test flying for us. Indeed, very interesting to see that and it's uh, great to see that Australia's got one and it's caught up to New Zealand. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. We, no, we are very fortunate to have one and um, no, very fortunate that the owner has a a real passion for the uh, those aircraft, so yeah. it's great to see that type of aircraft in Australia. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be great on the air show scene. They make a bit of a uh, a point of difference when they're you know in the air with a few Spitfires or you know something like that. They're great. Well, it's just great to see a different aircraft, and it's amazing the amount of interest we've had through various places. People ringing up just wanting to see it because it's an aeroplane that has not been seen in Australia before. Yeah, exactly. And don't they sound good? 
Oh, the sound is amazing and it performs very well too. I was very impressed to watch it take off. Yeah, yeah. And you've had a, I understand you've had a taxi round, uh, but not flown it yet. Uh, yes, I did um, because we've got our crew of engineers here. We've done all the initial test running and power runs on the engine before the um, test pilot came from Germany. Yep. And it actually was interesting when you actually settle down into it and start taxiing it around. It's just another aeroplane, really. Yeah. It's a pretty cool aeroplane with some pretty big blades on the engine. Yes. But, um, and very noisy, like really, really noisy, especially compared, in the cockpit. Compared to other uh, fighters of the era, would you say? No, or in that bracket. probably in the bracket. Yeah. Um, they've all got exhausts in front of you and yep. all the exhaust goes past the cockpit yep. and they all make noise. <laughs> will, will you be flying it eventually? Uh, eventually, I hope to, yes. That's sort of hopefully the plan. The owner um, will be flying it as well. Yep. So um, that's the plan eventually, so I look forward to that. Great, great. Well, can we take you back right back to the beginning and uh, find out how you first got an interest in aviation, how you got into the uh, whole game? Yeah. Well, my parents, Keith and Margaret, uh, started the business Hazair here at Albury back in 1960. Right. Uh, Keith has been an ag pilot since the mid to late 50s, and he and my mother started the business here in 1960. Um, that's been going really well. I started here when I left school in 1980 as a uh, loader driver, loading the trucks with the super yep. and um, loading the spray planes with the chemical. So that um, was sort of an introduction to it all. Right. And from there we've moved on uh, in 1983. I got my commercial licence and started ag flying. Uh, I've been ag flying ever since. Um, I was also very lucky in about 1984 or five at uh, Colin Pay. Uh, or the late Colin Pay, who was a very good friend of my father's, um, got one of the first Harvards in Australia. Um, a friend of his, Hamish Brunton, owned it. Right. And he checked me out in the Harvard. Um, I then went on to fly a Wirraway, another friend of mine, Jeff Millen and Vin Thomas owned. Yep. So I got quite a bit of time in Harvards and Wirraways. Um, in the late 80s, I got to fly a um, Firefly, Fairy Firefly, oh, that right. was owned by uh, a chap in Newcastle. Um, and about the same time, uh, I was fortunate enough to fly Cole Pay's Mustang. Nice. And then went on. I um, then went on to fly his P40, um, and went on to fly quite a few Warbird or World War Two types after that, which uh, I've been extremely fortunate to do that through my life. So I've yes. been very lucky, and still today, uh, I'm still very lucky to be able to do that. Now, you've been involved with the uh, Harvard aerobatic team here, haven't you? Yes, the Southern Knights are an aerobatic team we formed in about 1994 or five. Oh no, it might be a bit later than that. But initially, for the one of the first Avalon air shows, right? And it comprised of uh, Peter Clements and Darcy O'Connor, both ex-roulette guys, uh, Doug Hamilton, myself, and Guy Burke. And we generally have about five pilots, so we can always field four pilots, four aeroplanes, yep. uh, depending obviously on workloads. And we've been doing um, air shows right across Australia from Cairns right through to uh, South Australia uh, for the last probably 15 years. Right. If I can just butt in there, I mean, for people who don't know, um, you're doing this on a part-time basis around a day job normally, so there's a, there's a degree of uh, fitting the time in, but you have to do a lot of practice, stay current, practice again. Um, and of course, if people change position, then there's pr more practice needed. It's a, it's a lot of work, isn't it? There is quite a bit of work, but we're very, very cunning in that having the two ex-roulette guys with us, they know what you can and can't do. And they also worked on the theory that just have a really good show and keep the same show. Don't keep trying to add things, right. take things away. Yeah. Uh, and it's still today, we still do the same show that we did when we started. And it's ingrained in our heads. We can walk through it all before we yeah. go flying. We can go and practice it. We generally fly much the same positions. I usually fly the right wing 
Um, Guy Burke flies a left wing. We have either Darcy O'Connor or Pete Clements in the lead, and usually Doug Hamilton in the box. Right. And we sort of keep those positions. Now and then we have a change, yep. but we're generally on the same positions doing the same thing. You won't have Doug uh, this uh, this weekend coming, will you? He's, no, uh, no, he's no. laid up at the moment. So who's, in the, who's in the box this time? Uh, we've got Scotty Tabner, who's oh, yeah. done quite a bit of fill-in work for us over the years. Yep. So he'll be um, doing a bit of that. So he'll be in for the practice uh, probably this afternoon and tomorrow again. Right. And um, then he'll be in for the show on Friday night and Saturday. Great. And just one last thing there I've, I'd like to add for Dave here. Um, we had some uh, Kiwis who remain nameless because otherwise they might have their passports taken away. But they watched your show and they thought you guys were really good. Better than another Antipodean dis four-ship display. So uh, you can, do you want to cut that out, Dave? You can cut it out. Really. <laughs> <laughs> no, Friendly competition. No, good stuff. The one thing we have learned over the years is the fact that we have uh, smoke and noise. Uh, we often come back to a show and say, well, we could have done that a little better, you know, a little bit loose in some places. And we talk to a lot of our pilots on the ground who are watching, who know the show really well, and they just say, no, that was just magnificent. Yep. And I think the fact we've got smoke and noise, they yep. cover both those... Um, things and it just is visually stunning. And you're tight too, you, you yeah. guys are close together which helps a lot. Yeah, so. and um, yeah, the Roaring Forties, they put on an amazing display yes. as well. And, uh, they certainly do, they put on a great display. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually really interesting to hear that you've still got the same core guys all yeah. the way through for 15 years. There's yep. not many display teams of any sort that would have had that same... No, and I, I think that's a reason it works, Dave, because we've got the same guys, we know how they all fly, we know what they're thinking. Uh, and we can, you know, we operate as one team very easily because we've flown together for many years. Right, right, okay. Um, we're actually in, in Steve's office at, at Hazair, and I think just one thing I'd like to pick up at this point is that the Warbird stuff, which we'd all love to talk about, it's great, very cool. Um, that isn't the day job. Uh, very few people manage to make it the full-time day job, <laughs> Steve. Um, you've got a lot of experience, but um, tell us a bit about how your mix is these days. What, what, how does your year pan out as a rule? Oh, my year pans out pretty busy for some reason, but um, we actually run a maintenance workshop here at Albury. We've got uh, four engineers on staff. I'm the chief engineer of that company. Uh, we also run an agricultural spreading and spraying business. Um, I'm the chief pilot of that company, same company. Um, we have one other full-time pilot and a part-time pilot there. So between all those guys, we sort of they keep the whole operation going pretty well. And I do a lot of aircraft ferrying. I pick up all the new air tractors in America and bring them out to Australia and whatever aircraft need to be moved, the um, PAC 750s from Pacific Aerospace in New Zealand, I do a lot of their deliveries around the world. Right. So I keep myself pretty busy ferrying aircraft as well as um, you know, running the office, with, keep everything on track. With, with the agricultural stuff, uh, what's the sort of ratio between uh, top dressing with fertiliser or spraying? Uh, it varies year by year because we're very, very much in the hands of the weather. Um, this year, as an example, we did probably 50% 50, 50 spreading, 50% spraying. Yep. Uh, last year the spreading might have got up to about 70%. Yep. Um, so it varies year to year. Okay. Um, we operate two Transavia air trucks on the fertiliser spreading work, um, which we've had for many years and we keep maintaining very well. And we have two uh, Cessna Huskies that we use for the spraying work. Right. We find most of our work here is mostly small area work, so we've right. we've looked at the bigger aircraft, but it just doesn't quite work off our airstrips. Most of our airstrips are farm airstrips, yep. so they're all smaller airstrips, smaller blocks, 
and the smaller aeroplanes are meeting our needs really well and doing a good quality job, which is what the farmer wants. Something I've noticed here, uh, it's pretty flat around Australia. <laughs> it's compared, yes. to, compared to at home, and the, you know the top dressing guys um, usually the strips on a hill. Yep. So I guess the must you must just have long strips to get that big load off the ground. Or? Well, where we are here at Albury, we're actually on the edge of the hills. To the east of us is uh, the hills, running right up to the Snowy Mountains. Yep. And to the west, it goes flat. So we find that most of our super spreading work is done to the east of Albury yep. in the hills, as you talked about. Uh, we do quite a bit of urea spreading for our farmers in the flatter country on wheat and canola crops. Oh yes, yep. and that's out of farmer airstrips, which, as you said, are generally flat airstrips of 700 metres or 800 metres long. Yep. And then our spraying work, we do quite a bit in the hills on thistles and the like. And then we do uh, a fair bit of it also to the uh, west on the canola and the wheat and those sort of crops. Okay. Just going back to the air truck, um, uh, for those that are not, probably not familiar with an air truck, I don't think you can just see an air truck and not become familiar with it. It's one of the most distinctive looking aeroplanes around. I love it. Um, it's a great aeroplane. Uh, you've had a long relationship with the air truck as a particular type, haven't you, in this yes. company? Yes. My father, Keith, bought his first air truck in 1967. It was serial number three off the production line. And we've had that here up to about three years ago when one of our local uh, farmer pilots um, Ian Bell purchased the aeroplane because okay. we were no longer actually using it for fertiliser work. So we had it here just basically as a spare aeroplane and then we finally realised we didn't really need a spare aeroplane. So um, Ian bought that office and he's um, maintained it just as a, as a historic aircraft. He doesn't use it for work um, and really, really enjoys flying it. So he actually likes the air truck for its own he enjoyment? He loves it. And you'll probably see the air truck up at um, yeah. Warbirds down under this weekend. Oh, great. And keeps it at tomorrow. Yep, and yep. he's hanging up there. Yep. We saw it, I think, uh, when I came up with Scotty uh, for a show a little while ago. Yes. We corresponded Ian and I about that. But you're still using them. That's Yeah, we important. still have two others. The two we actually have were built in the, uh, I think the last ones, one of them was the last one built. And the other one was uh, built in the mid-80s. Okay. And they've all had new fuselages in them. Uh, the wings have been rebuilt. Uh, they both had new engines and props in them in the last couple of years. Um, we keep them inside all the time, so that makes a big difference yep. to the quality of the aeroplane. Uh, most aeroplanes that are kept outside generally last about 10 to 15 years because the corrosion and the weather gets to them. But um, my father Keith has always believed in keeping aircraft inside hangars, and uh, as a result, they're, they're well maintained, and you know, we've got a fleet of guys here that look after them well. So we're still operating to today. We're probably the biggest uh, fleet owner of air trucks in the world. Right, right. I think so. And, and um, it's an interesting point just to take that forward is that uh, hangarage is actually more important than hard work in terms of preserving an aircraft. Because I think a lot of people would think ag aircraft, yeah, they have a hard life, and they do, don't they? Oh, yes. They, but actually the hangarage is what keeps the life going. Well, it's generally corrosion is what kills them. Yeah. Um, and corrosion comes from rain and weather. Uh, if you can keep them inside, you can keep that corrosion at bay by good maintenance. Yeah. But the other thing, they're quite an unusual aircraft. They've got a um, very distinctive arrangement of wings almost stacked on top of each other. And yeah, they're they, called they, a sesquiplane. Mm. <laughs> Not a biplane, but a sesquiplane. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, how do you get parts for them? Or, or you know, is, it, is there a, uh, like a spares uh, system still going for these things? Or? Yeah, we actually sorted out the spares system when they closed the factory in the mid-90s. We actually bought all the parts, all the drawings, all the jigs, um, a spare fuselage, spare wings. So we have a, a very big spares holding. Okay. Uh, between ourselves and another fellow in Christchurch, Arthur Rudderclaw, owns a lot of spare parts. 
So between those people and a couple of the old air truck operators, we pretty much can come up with anything we need. But in the real world, all we're changing is the consumables. We're doing tyres, engines, props. The actual airframes are a good solid airframe, um, so we're not having any airframe issues with them, and um, the parts we have are much, much more than we'll ever need. And would you say it's, I mean, um, I love it because it's different. It's a great, great looking, just to go on from what Dave said, you've got a little stubby fuselage, a uh, little flat engine on the front, and um, uh, the long booms with independent tailplanes, which again is very, I think, pretty much unique as a production aircraft. I can't think of any other. Um, so the old cliche about looks right, flies right. This looks different, but flies right. Obviously, you're finding them, they pay their way. You're oh, they're, they're a great aeroplane. They're very easy to fly. They're very forgiving. Um, they are really, I, I compare them to a Cessna 150 to fly. They're okay. just a simple aeroplane and you can sit in them all day long working in them and there's nothing stressful or difficult. Okay. Uh, they're a little bit noisy in the cockpit mainly because you're sitting on top of the engine but we generally wear earplugs and um, a helmet which solves that problem yeah. and otherwise they're a really great aeroplane. And the, the origins of them, um, even though they, they were produced here in Australia, the original air truck with the sea in the in the mm. truck work came, came from New Zealand, didn't it? It did, down at Tikawiti. Um, it was built down there, the PL-11, that aircraft was, and it was actually built out of uh, Harvard parts. That's right, yeah. Had a 1340 in the front, a Harvard cowl, had Harvard wheels, the canopy was a Harvard canopy, and I'm not too sure about the rest of the bits, but um, there was a lot of Harvard parts in there. They only built two or three. Uh, sadly, none survived, but after that, um, Luigi Pellerini, the designer, came to Australia and started working with uh, Transfield in Sydney and they built the PL12 which was the modified version basically. Yeah, that's uh, recycling at its best really isn't oh, it? Oh, it was big time <laughs> recycling. Yeah. And actually it's funny because you put that next to the uh, CT4 we were talking about uh, in another podcast with uh, uh, other great pilots here on the scene and it's the sort of thing in reverse, that's the other way around with the CT4 and, and obviously selling back here. So it's great, you know, one of the things that's been good about this tour is all the cross-Tasman stuff between New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. Um, but to jump sideways, the, the ferrying career, I find all of that sort of stuff fascinating because it's a lot of logistics and um, Steve and I have talked a bit before, Steve gets to read a lot, I understand, when you're ferrying. Well, you get a little bit of spare time when you're ferrying yeah. airplanes. <laughs> um, flights are usually, you know, it's a short leg if it's sort of seven or eight hours and up to 13 or 14 hours between the west coast and Hawaii is not uncommon. So there is a bit of time to fill in and I find that my thinking is you're there you just have to get to the other end, so you're only filling in the day, so yeah, I tend to uh, have the electronic book with me and yeah. read books just basically to fill in the time. Right. What's the longest leg that you've flown? The longest leg you fly is from Hawaii, be it Honolulu or Hilo, to the west coast, and I usually go to Santa Maria, which is just up from Los Angeles, and that leg, if you go to Hilo, the shortest leg you can make it is 2,072 miles. And normally I do, uh, coming out this way in an air tractor, I'll go from Santa Maria to Honolulu, and that's 2,140 or 50 miles. How does that translate to hours? In the uh, on a good day, you get through in about 12, 12 and a half hours. On a poor day, you get out to about 14. That's a long time to be sitting in a little it's cockpit. It's a long time to be sitting in a little cockpit. <laughs> My I first reaction there is, uh, is those complaining of the seat pitch and comfort of their airliner seat would probably uh, like to have a think about that kind of experience because yeah, I don't think it's yeah. as comfortable up there, is it? That's true. It's not as comfortable, but those seats are built for, to sit in all day when you're right. riding. Yeah. So you do actually find that to sit in them all day, it's I'm not saying it's comfortable, no, but no. it's not you know, unpleasant. Yeah, better than sitting on a bank seat, ferrying a jet yes. flight or somewhere. Yes, way, around. way yeah. better. Yeah.
and it's always really good to get out the other end. So tell us a favourite ferrying story, because I'm sure you've got a few you know, experiences or things that have happened, or has it always been smooth, smooth sailing? No, it's pretty much been smooth sailing. I've been very lucky because being a lamey, I tend to look closely at the aeroplanes that I fly before yes. I fly them. Yes. Um, and you think about stuff uh, as what's going on engineering-wise. Yeah. And I'm also very fortunate that a large percentage of my aeroplanes are new aeroplanes that right. I ferry. Yeah. Yeah. New yeah. air tractors out of the factory in Texas or new um, PAC 750s out of Pacific Aerospace in Hamilton. Yep. Um, I have some second-hand aircraft that I ferry, uh, but not a lot and usually reasonably good aircraft. Um, we've got a Baron here at the moment that's a 2013 model. Right. Um, it's only got 500 hours on it and we're doing an annual inspection on it, which is again good because yep. we can establish yep. that everything's good. Yeah. Um, we generally fit our own, or I fit my own ferry fuel systems. Yeah. Uh, they're all CASA approved by yep. uh, a Part 21 uh, company. So they're all legal and when you fit them you understand how they work yeah. and in a lot of cases when you hear of ferrying stories it's usually a fuel system problem yeah. and it's often a case that ferry pilots are ferry pilots, they go and pick an aeroplane up from somewhere, it's been tanked, it's ready to go, uh, but they have a problem and they probably don't understand how the system is actually designed, tapped or um, yeah. operated. Yeah correctly and sometimes you know it may fail but not knowing how it works you can't often fix it yourself whereas I sort of have an idea of how it all works so you can think your way through things and but having said that it's all been pretty much smooth sailing. Good yeah. Now we talked earlier about your flying the Harvard with the team uh, how about some of the other aircraft that you fly on on the air show scene? Yeah I'm very fortunate in that I fly at the Tomorrow Aviation Museum I fly there both their Spitfires uh, the Lockheed Hudson, which is the only one in the world. Oh, right. um, the Wirraway I fly sometimes. Um, I was very fortunate to borrow Judy Pay's Mustang to go up to Narromine to the SAAA air show up there back in October. So I'm pretty lucky. I get to fly some extremely cool aeroplanes. Yeah, yeah. Well, have, you, have, have you got a favourite? Uh, the Mustang is definitely the favourite. The Mustang's been my favourite since I was a kid. All I ever wanted to do was fly a Mustang. And I flew one when I was about 23. 24 and yeah I thought that was as cool as and still today I, I just love it. That's awesome. interesting yeah it's, it's great when the dream dream comes true but I think you said lucky very very several, several times here and I think that's a good point to make but something that's come up in a lot of these conversations and I firmly believe yes there's luck involved but also there's a lot of hard work and there's choosing your target and going after it. I, I know um, you know, I'm here today because I chose what was important to me which is to report on this kind of stuff and to, to you know talk to people like yourself and find out how it all works. Um, and other people, you know, they go, oh, I'd like to fly the Mustang. And you say, well, how much do you want to fly the Mustang? And they go, well, not going to buy a cheaper car and put money into flying lessons. And But you, you've got to want it, haven't you? Mm. And, and um, you actually actually made that happen. Were there any things you'd say to someone who wants to go and become a Warbird pilot? What, what would the tips from the top be? The tips really are you have to seriously buy your own aeroplane. Yeah. I know it sounds, it's great to go and hire an aeroplane. It's great to get someone to fly your aeroplane. But the guys who really want to get somewhere, I tell them, write the check out, go and buy Harvard, just keep flying it around. And Harvard um, is the big Harvard stepping stone. Harvard is the stepping stone. It was a stepping stone in World War yeah. II. It still is today. Yeah. And once you can fly a Harvard very well, uh, everything else is easy. You can step into a P-40, it's as simple as. Yeah. You can step into a Mustang, it's a little bit quicker. Uh, they do have different numbers, different figures, but if you can fly the Harvard well, you can fly all that World War II stuff without any trouble. Um, I've been very fortunate now flying the, the P-40, the Mustang, the yep. Sea Fury, um, yeah, 
quite a few of those heavy aeroplanes and Spitfires. And it's all Mustang it, it's training. A, it's all that T six is all T it's yeah. a perfect trainer. And yeah, that's what I've told guys, just go and buy one, keep flying it around. It won't happen next week. Yeah. Um, and keep working your way towards it. It is sadly it's getting harder to fly the World War Two aeroplanes because there's not a lot of air shows that they have to go to, so there's yeah. not a lot of reason to fly them. Yeah. Uh, they've also become very valuable. Yeah. So insurance costs are high and people yeah. tend to only put people in them if you know they really need to or they wish to. Yeah. But yeah, the first place, you know, if you turn up without some time, you've yeah. got no chance. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier the uh, Hudson. Can you tell me about that? Because there's not many pilots that get to fly them these days. <laughs> no, actually, uh, we are out flying. I went up last week or the week before to do a test flight on the Hudson because they've now got the Bombay doors operational. They put all the hydraulics and the cables and all the actuators in it. Right. And I went up there to do the test flying just to ensure there were no problems with it. Um, I spent a bit of time with Andy Bishop, their chief engineer. Yeah. We went through the hydraulic systems, the electric systems, uh, through the flight manuals. And interesting, there were no speed limits on that the doors. There's oh, no right. yeah. no limitations of any type. Wow. Okay. So we went and test flew it. We started our test flying at 110 knots, worked our way up to 180 knots. We found no problems with it. And after we finished, uh, Andy was with me in the cockpit because it's actually only a single control aeroplane but we always have a co-pilot with us so that we've got an extra set of eyes at the right-hand side. So we've got someone to pump the undercarriage down if we need it um, and someone to run the checklist for us just to make sure we get everything right. Yeah. So it works well and I did say to Andy as we are flying home, I said, we are probably the first people in 70 years that have opened the Bombay doors on a Hudson. Yeah, oh, you, you um, would be definitely. That's right, because, because there's been no other reason. No, right, no. So it was pretty cool, but uh, it, it's an interesting aeroplane to fly. It's a, not so much a challenge, it's not that hard to fly, but it's just a very historic aeroplane. It goes very well because we're operating at light weights. Yeah. Um, we're not carrying a bomb load around, we're not carrying full fuel around. So it performs really, really well. Um, and it's just a, an absolute pleasure to fly. Yeah, yeah. It's one of our, both uh, Dave and myself, one of our favorite aircraft. And um, I was lucky enough to get a, a ride a few years ago in the back and you were, you were flying, yep. Steve, which was which was great. And um, I managed to squeeze myself into the turret, which looks easy because yep. the turret's big on the top, but small hole to get into it. Um, and I released the turret and then uh, you gave us a little gentle wing over and the turret swings around and back again. Now, yes. Does the turret affect the flying characteristics much? It does. We usually leave it locked in the rearward position uh, when we're flying it. But if you have people in there operating the turret, it can be manually operated. Yeah. And it's actually not concentric with the aeroplane. As it actually operates, it loads the uh, the rudder balance one way or the other. So you do notice from the pilot yeah. seat when someone is winding the uh, turret around. And you can compensate. It's not hard. Just push on a rudder or the other rudder. Yeah, yeah. So there's but no rocket science. But you know, but you know someone's, someone's wheeling the yeah. turret around and around. The question I've always wanted to ask you about that is um, I was recently uh, doing some more research and writing about uh, the Hudson again uh, for Aeroplane Magazine in the UK. And we did a database on it and um, rereading some of the pilot accounts from World War Two. And there's a famous account I'm sure you know of a, an Australian pilot in uh, 1942, very early, who was attacked by a whole bunch of zeros. And he fought them off for quite some time, uh, he mm. and his crew. Um, and he was apparently doing almost, you know, standing on the wing and it the Japanese pilots, sadly he and his crew were killed, reported afterwards that the manoeuvres they were, were doing were just amazing, sort of throttling back on one engine. I mean, how much would you want to be throwing that at? I mean, obviously not in a warbird situation, you wouldn't no. do that, but in combat, do you feel it's an aeroplane you could really chuck around the sky? Oh, it, it is unbelievable. What it, it would do a whole lot more than we can do with yeah. it. Is, um, it it's, it's not terribly manoeuvrable. Like you do wind on the aileron and then a couple of seconds later it starts to roll. Yeah. 
but you certainly could move it around the sky as much as you wanted to. Um, you certainly wouldn't outfly a zero, yeah. but you could actually manoeuvre it around very well. It's actually interesting you say that. I've um, had the pleasure of talking with a lot of Hudson veterans. Um, as James knows, I've been putting together the history of our Hudson squadrons, and um, one of the chaps who I was very lucky to uh, interview before he died was George Gutsell, who um, actually was awarded an immediate DFC by the US um, forces uh, because two days apart he had two events where his, him and his crew were attacked by three zeros mm. and they actually outmaneuvered the zeros on both occasions okay. and, and that, that only just arrived at Guadalcanal, this is October, uh, sorry November 1942, they only just arrived there, the Americans had taken a look at these aircraft and said they're airliners, they're never going to go anywhere with this. And uh, and then uh, you know, a couple of days later they'd shown them that twice they, they actually managed to completely outmaneuver the three fighters that were attacking them and yeah. come back alive. So you know, they were, were a remarkable aircraft in, in uh, that respect. Now they certainly were remarkable and as, as you say, when you see the show with the Hudson, um, it, we, we don't do aerobatic manoeuvres with it for obvious reasons, but it actually is very manoeuvrable yeah. in every way, shape and form and we do not even get remotely near its capabilities, but it actually does go very well. Yeah, great, right. great design by Kelly Johnson there. Yeah, and, and a lovely, as I said, a lovely aeroplane to fly, well balanced, um, not terribly difficult to fly. So I could see where it would have been a successful, a very successful aeroplane. Yeah. That's one of the things I've been looking forward to most of this trip is seeing the Hudson in the air because I've seen several of them over in New Zealand and they're all in the museums or collections yep. and seeing one in the air that's just going to be fantastic. Yeah, Absolutely. you will very much enjoy it. I, I had look, I think it's on. Certainly flying Saturday and maybe on Friday as well, but it's definitely on Saturday. Great, right. So right. you will uh, very you, much enjoy you it. flying this Hudson? Yes, this I'll be flying this weekend. Oh, great. Uh, that's, that's great. And obviously, as we've said, uh, both Dave and myself regard the Hudson very hi highly, but let's talk to a more common, less uh, less widely available, um, what about the, the mere Spitfire. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, well, we've got two of those. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, obviously, the Hudson's unique and that, that's a special too, but the Spitfire's are obviously a great aeroplane in every direction. Everybody uh, knows about it. Um, you mentioned the Mustang at the moment ago. Obviously, the Spitfire would have been a, something you built as a model as a kid. And did you ever really think you'd be flying, flying Spitfires? No, I never ever thought I'd be flying Spitfires. Like I was thrilled when I flew the Mustang. Yeah. Thrilled when I got to fly P40s, Sea Furies, but I never never thought I'd get to a Spitfire. Um, and I do remember it was back in September of 2006. Colin Pay did my original Spitfire endorsement. Yeah. And that was at Tamora. Yeah. And I remember being. Uh, I had a ferry up to. Kuala Lumpur in an air tractor to do a fire bombing demonstration up there. And I said to the guy, I can go up there, but I've got to be back by Wednesday. Uh, Why is that? So I'm doing a Spitfire endorsement. It just doesn't matter. I've got to be back by Wednesday. <laughs> there was no, no discussion yes, about this. Right. <laughs> this is how it's happening. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I came back and um, it was great because Colin, uh, like Colin realised I could fly Harvard's and yeah. you know, I'd done ag work with him before and the like. And he gave me a very good briefing on how it flies, the power settings. Uh, what you expect to see, um, the noises, the yeah. you know, the little idiosyncrasies that he knew because he'd already done about uh, two or three hundred hours in that aeroplane. Right. And yeah, I went and flew it and it was just about exactly as he said. Um, I did quite a few circuits that day, I then the next day I took it up to Narromine for a show there and back again and um, I've been flying it ever since. Did you and find yourself looking out of the wing? wing, wing the did you find yourself looking out of the cockpit at the wing and going, that's a Spitfire wing? Oh yeah, it's, it's a Spitfire wing all over. And it's a funny thing when you fly it because everything's in the wrong place. Like the undercarriage is on the right hand side, so after takeoff, 
have to take your hand off the throttle, yeah. put it on the stick, take your hand off the stick, put it on the chassis lever. Yeah. You put the chassis up, you put your hand back on the throttle, on the uh, stick, stick, the other hand back on the throttle, because by then it's probably creeped back a little bit, you put it back up again, and you keep flying. It's just horribly designed ergonomically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, I've grown to like it. You know, I really enjoy flying um, Coles Old Spitfire, yeah. the Mark 8. Yeah. Um, I feel really at home in that aeroplane. I've been you know, quite a few places around the country in it, um, on displays, and yeah, you just get used to it. Is, is there much difference between the Mark 8 and the Mark 16? No, very little. When we bought the Mark 16, when tomorrow bought the Mark 16, I went and did the initial test flying in it for them, and I was stunned with how similar it was. Um, there was a few switches in a few different places, um, but apart from that, the flying is exactly the same, the noise is the same, it is just about exactly the same. Right. It's interesting because the uh, the nine was the emergency version, the sixteen was the kind of improved version, and the, the eight was what it was what they were meant to be. When you know the, the whole sequence of Spitfires is a bit odd, but they're all the sort of pinnacle of the fighter Merlin mm. versions, weren't they? So that that's perhaps not so surprising. Um, the other thing, though, just to, again moving on a bit, um, the P40s. You're you're one of the few guys I think who's actually flown Merlin powered P40s as well as Allison powered P40s. Yes, right? I've flown. Pretty much all the P40s in the country. Right. So, um, what's the difference between the Merlin and the, and the Arson in terms of the piloting, or is there is it about the same? Or? Uh, it's actually a little bit. It performs a little bit less than the Arson powered one because right. it doesn't have the actual horsepower. It is Merlin powered, but yeah. that doesn't say that it's instantly 1600 horsepower. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a smaller engine. Um, that aircraft has all its original armour plating in it, yeah. radios and everything. So yeah. it's actually a, when you start looking at them all weight wise, it's a heavier airplane. Yeah. But its flight characteristics are very similar again. Right. So um, the, the it's very little difference shape to the nose doesn't make much difference. Makes very little difference to it. Yeah. Well, the thing I'd like to say here is, of course, that uh, the thing that amazes me about you and the Spitfire is how you fit in. Steve's Steve's not a not a small guy, and uh, and you just look like you're happy in there, but there can't be much elbow room. No, we talked about that this morning when we were looking at the uh, Fock Wolf 190. Yeah. And I mentioned to Dave that to sit in that. Uh, to close the canopy, I have to sort of twist sideways because oh, yeah. my shoulders are wider than the canopy. <laughs> Once the canopy is closed, it's yeah. okay because it bows out towards the back. Yeah. Um, odd enough, the Mustang is the same. When you close oh, the canopy okay. on the Mustang, you put your head down and the canopy right, uh, bow goes over the top of you yeah. and then you've into a bubble behind that and it fits nicely. But still, your shoulders are against the rails. Uh, sea Fury is the same. When you fly yeah. the Sea Fury, the, the shoulders hit the rails at about your top of the arm. The Sea Fury is um, remarkably small uh, slot. It's a very small slot to fit into, but yeah. the FW190 is very similar yeah. in the seating position where everything is. Um, right. You're really sitting into it. So, it, yeah, I, but oddly enough in the Spitfire, it actually, because you have your little side door to open, yeah. uh, once you're actually in there with the door shut, the actual canopy rails are just above your shoulders. Yeah. Um, it's really only your head sticking at the top. Um, and it actually fits remarkably well, strangely. You would think not, mm. but... Yeah, I do odd enough fit in there. I have the seat, you know, sort of about halfway down. Yeah. And the rudder pedal is pushed right away. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you sort of fit in there, and really you're not going anywhere or doing anything, so yeah. you just sit there and fly it around as required. Um, one big area which sort of relates in with the the agricultural flying is is the um, the water bombing, fire bombing, which um, you you've just completed an endorsement on mm. the. Uh, Firebus yes. float plane or, or amphibian really is it's a bit of everything <laughs> yeah it actually <laughs> is we've, uh, I've been at Albury or well, I live at Albury of course but I've been flying fire bombers here on and off since 1996 or seven um, they have a con contract for an aeroplane based here so it's always been a wheeled air tractor 
Yep. And I've flown that for many years, and then the contract came up last year for renewal. Um, Pays Air Services Scan won the contract again, and it was actually for a Fireboss, which is an air tractor on floats. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of that is you can actually scoop the water off lakes, dams, rivers, uh, and put it on the fire, which actually gets you a much quicker turnaround time yeah. than actually going back to a fixed base to land, to re reload, and go out again. Yeah. So we're typically looking at you know a normal load of an air tractor is about three thousand litres or three yeah. tonne of water. Um, off a wheeled aeroplane, you, know, you may have to go 15 minutes each way, but off the fire boss you can be down to sort of two or three minutes from right. a lake. Yeah. And you would all say, oh yeah, but there's no lakes in summer, they're all dried up. But it's interesting where the lakes are, where the waterways are, where you can actually scoop water from. Uh, last year was the first year it operated here, I didn't fly it last year. Yeah. Uh, we had a Canadian fellow flying it, and yeah, he. He had no trouble, he did really well. Um, it moved a lot of water onto the fires, which is what we're looking for. Yep. Um, so this year, I was very fortunate with uh, Frank Kent, the other chap that flies the aeroplane. He's a primary pilot for the aeroplane here. Right. Uh, we both did our Fireboss rating at Grafton this year with Jesse Weaver, who uh, works for Aerospray in America. Right. And he's probably one of the higher time Fireboss pilots in the world. And he was an excellent instructor. So yep. he was able to sit in the back of the two-seat Fireboss um, and tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, yeah. and um, convince us that what we're doing is not too bad. Whereas Frank <laughs> and I both thought we were not doing too well, but uh, <laughs> Jesse was very happy with us. Yeah. So we spent uh, the best part of a week in Grafton. Um, we did a full day of ground school first on the systems and the aircraft, and then we went on to the flying and the two-seater. Um, initially Jesse flew from the front and demonstrated it all for us, and he climbed to the back and we took over from the front. And we just did general flying. I think we did about 80 scoops for the week. Yep. Uh, about seven, seven to eight hours flying time for the training. Uh, we eventually went on to fly the single seat aeroplane, which we have here. And uh, yeah, it's based here for the summer. So um, yeah, there'll be plenty more practice, but it was, a, it was a very challenging week because it was something that neither Frank nor I had done a lot of. Yep. And yeah, there's a lot of thinking and it's, it's a very procedural aeroplane. Right. Um, being an amphibian as such, it's very important to ensure the wheels are in the correct place, yep. whether on the ground or on the water. Yep. Um, we had that drummed into us, as Jesse kept saying, the important thing is what? We said the wheels. <laughs> so, <laughs> we learned that very early in the piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it'll be an interesting, um, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. It's something new that I hadn't, hadn't done before and I really enjoyed the challenge yep. and will go on to enjoy the challenge. So That's great. Um, it is good. I mean, the, the, uh, the Fireboss, it's one of those aircraft you look at and you think, well, that's a that's an interesting, and then you get close. It's a big aeroplane, and then you've got these huge, great floats on it. And of course, they're not standard floats, they're not even standard amphibious floats, because you're, you're scooping with them. Mm. They've got a much more um, technology going on with how they work. Um, and I'm just chatting to, to Frank uh, before we started this interview, and he was saying the whole thing about how you push and pull uh, is different to normal um, water bombing uh, procedures. Is that is that correct, or am I missing? Yeah, no, it's it is different. The actual water bombing procedures are very similar. Yeah. But it's just a whole different aeroplane in that it's a lot, lot slower because yeah. it's got the extra weight of the floats underneath it. Presumably, when, um, when you're carrying the water, there's a couple of like carrying a couple of big shopping bags or something yes, down well, below you, aren't you? Well, its max takeoff weight is sixteen thousand pounds, so it's right. you know seven and a half ton <laughs> of aeroplane at max takeoff weight. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it's a lot of aeroplane to manoeuvre around the skies, and of course the floats only make it go slower. Yep. Because there's a lot of drag underneath you. Yep. Um, the actual scoops are in the floats themselves, and they yep. scoop water up into the hopper at the rate of 200 litres per second. Wow. So within about 15 seconds, 
you go from when you're on the water from an empty aeroplane to a full aeroplane. So you are bringing the power on very rapidly yeah. to keep it on the step. Yeah. Uh, and then you're flying it away, and it is a heavy aeroplane when you fly it yeah. away. But um, yeah, we'll keep practicing. We will. We'll get good at it. But it's interesting you talk about being a big aeroplane on the ground, which it is. Yeah. Uh, as part of our training, we actually landed on the Clarence River and brought it to a full stop and did some taxiing on the water. And it sits very low in the water. Like you look out the side and think, well, wow, that's not far away. <laughs> but when it's parked on the ground, you think, we do not want to fall out of here because it's no, a long way down. It yeah. is, yeah. Uh, no, and even to climb in and out of it, it's you know, it's a bit of a job to climb up onto the floats, yeah. up onto the wing, into the cockpit. Yeah. But once you're in there, it's, it's good. So, uh, no, I'm looking forward. It'll be a good season and it's uh, another challenge for something that I haven't done before. So, so even with it. the diversity of your experience, there's still new things to you? There is always new things and um, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while, so yeah. um, it'll be good and it's just another facet of aviation that you know, I hadn't experienced before and I'm enjoying. Sure, it's sure. all important stuff too, I mean firefighting is very important, Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, dropping superphosphate on, on farmland and, and spraying, and it's all important for the, the whole sort of community mm -hmm. and the way things go around here. So. You're really a really important guy in this area. Yeah, I know about an important guy. I'm just one of a team of a lot of guys. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, you've got a good team because if you can go and ferry an aeroplane halfway around the world, taking an awful long time to do it, you've got yeah. good people you can trust here. And we, we arrived and we're having a bit of a chat uh, with, with the team uh, around the Smoko table um, this morning, and obviously, very good vibe, and, and they work very hard as well, clearly. So. Oh, they're, they're great. I'm very lucky. Yeah. I've got a great team of guys, and um, I remember Don Kendall, who used to own Kendall Airlines, yeah. an old friend of mine. He always was of the opinion, surround yourself with good people yeah. and yeah. just watch it from the top. That's a good point, actually. We were talking to Judy Pay uh, in another podcast, and Judy was was a very kind and great and gracious interviewer, and she actually uh, gave you a big thumbs up for the um, uh, your comments with the uh, the Mustang recently, that flight you just mentioned. But yep. um, it's also about the people and the teams and so on. So um, uh, it's quite a close knit community in Australia. Obviously, everybody seems to know everybody. Um, mm. Has it always been that way? It's probably less close-knit now than it was 20 years ago. Like right. 20 years ago, you literally did know everyone in yeah. Warbirds, quite literally. Yeah. Um, it's a bit less that case today, but yeah. I still know a lot of people. Um, and you still can find things out if you need information, if you need yeah. help. You can generally have a think about it and you know someone that's got an aeroplane or the parts or whatever yeah. you need. Yeah. So you generally can work your way through or you know someone who knows someone. Yeah. But is it less close-knit now because it's a growing industry? Yeah, only because it's a growing industry. That's yeah. the only reason why there's a lot more people involved in avia or in warbird aviation in Australia today. Yeah. Um, so that's the only reason it's sort yeah. of less close-knit. Um, it's a bit different to New Zealand where New Zealand being a smaller geographical area um, it's very close-knit yeah. because literally you are all very close to each other. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it works very, very well, but here in Australia we can be half a country away. Yeah. Do, do you ever come across to the New Zealand air shows and see the, what's happening in the scene there or, or even the agricultural type? Yeah, I, I like to go and sort of, I talk to the guys, we were over at Queenstown this year for the Joint Australian-New Zealand um, Aerial Application or Aerial Agricultural Association meetings. Yep. I'm actually the Vice President of the Australian Aerial Application Association. So we were at Queenstown this year and um, really enjoyed meeting with a lot of the New Zealand guys who now we've met before. Yep. But just talking about systems and technology is probably a big thing nowadays. Um, GPS technology, mm. uh, recording technology uh, is probably one of the next, well they are the big things now in our business. 
It's an interesting point. We, we've uh, just uh, also have a podcast in a series on uh, flying a C-130, or in this case, the L-100 and something, yeah. um, Hercules, uh, which is uh, outside at the moment as we're talking, and um, those guys were saying similar sort of things that, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of IT and technology support in terms of what they're trying to do now. Yes. Um, so is that a way you see things changing in the future? Will that go to Warbirds as well, do you think? I mean, the Warbirds no, is a different thing, isn't it? it's more of an application. We find in the fire bombing, the agriculture, you know, 20 years ago there was no tracking, yep. uh, no satellite, no nothing. But today all the aeroplanes in the firebombing business and our spraying aeroplanes all have uh, spider trackers, or we have spider trackers in our aeroplanes. Yep. Um, uh, the aeroplanes that go firebombing have Track Plus, and it just means that any time of the day or night you can launch your iPad, your computer, and you can know exactly where everyone is. Yep. Um, so that's been a great thing. Uh, in agriculture, uh, talking to Richard Donnelly at um, Super Air at Hamilton uh, mm -hmm. a couple of months ago, uh, Richard was talking about the fact that they're now tracking all of their loads. They're being, as the loader load, uh, loads a super, it weighs it, it gets put onto the log, it goes onto the flight log, it then gets tracked as to where the super's put. Yep. So at the end of the day, they know exactly how many tons they put out, they know exactly where it's gone, they can pass it on to the farmer. And it's just getting more and you know, more and more accurate. That's what it, we're finding. It's great, uh, all that technology. But at the same time, the flying is still flying, and it's mm. low flying, and it's mm. fairly dangerous flying at, in certain um, aspects. So you'll never re re really take that away from the pilot, will you? No, that's true. But interestingly, with the with the oversight now and the tracking system, you find the pilots are getting better. Right. They're wanting okay. to get better because you can now. Previously, you couldn't see what you'd done until maybe the next season when you looked and you know, if you're yep. spreading soup you might see some stripes. Yeah. Uh, now we can actually go home, we can download the disc out of the aeroplane, the stick. You can see where the path went and they're all trying to do better because they want to do, you know, basically 99.9% .9 of pilots want to improve what they're doing. Right. They want to do a good job. And now we have the ability to check the job and make it better, okay. which is good. And just a, a point I'd like to make there, I think um, with your father you've really seen probably most of the development of, of aerial agriculture through, I mean there wasn't a huge amount prior to when he started was there? No, Keith started in the mid 50s, uh, he started as a loader driver for okay. Max and Jim Hazleton, uh, he went on to fly Cessna 180s spreading fertiliser, yep. uh, that was in the days when tiger moths were still being regularly used, uh, he only flew the tiger a few times actually because uh, my mother and Jack McDonald, who's a yep. famous warbird pilot, um, they've actually both owned a tiger moth together in those days right. uh, as a business venture and Keith always thinks that was pretty cool because he got to fly 180 and Jack had to fly the tiger. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, yeah, Keith sort of came in at the start there and yeah, he didn't do much in tigers but did a lot in Cessna 180s, went yep. on to Pawnees, um, crop masters, air trucks. He was always a big follower of Australian aeroplanes. Yeah. Um, the Yeoman crop master was another one he owned. Two okay, of those yep. back in the early 60s. Yeah. So um, he always believed in Australian aeroplanes. Um, he also delivered a lot of air trucks around the world. Okay. In the late 60s, early 70s, he took a lot of them to uh, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, right through to India. Um, so yeah, he did a lot of that work as well. Um, yeah, so he's sort of seen it all from the very start to what we have today. So it's great to have a, a company, as you say, that's both local in, in, in Albury here and also Australian, supporting Australian um, driven, but uh, that you've got that long heritage too with it, with it being mm. a family company too, which, which is terrific. Looking to the future, just one, I think, last question from me. Um, what would you like to do that you haven't had a crack at yet? Is there something on the wish list? 
No, I've done pretty well. You have. Like, I've, been, <laughs> I've, been, I've been incredibly lucky. I've had yeah. a lot of fortune in the places I've been to, the aeroplanes I've flown, the people I've met. Um, I have been incredibly lucky. And still enjoying it. I oh, think I'm still, still, still loving every bit yeah. of it. I'm still very fortunate to do what yeah. I do. Yeah. So, um, no, there's nothing really that I could say You're I'd really it. like to do. Um, yeah, things come up. I like to fly things now and then. Yep. But I also sort of believe in standing back and, you know, if someone offers you a ride in something, go and take it for a ride. If they don't offer you, don't sort of rush up and yeah. start waving your arms around. Well, there's a good point there that you've got to where you are today by having experience, being a, a licensed mm. mechanic and uh, and be, being, um, you can't say this perhaps, but I certainly can regard as a trusted pair of hands and with mm. a good record, which is how these things, these invitations come. Just to move forward, of course, I've just remembered something about the next generation. I understand uh, there's, a, there's a young gentleman who's got some chipmunk time now, is that correct? Yeah, well, I've got uh, I've got three boys. Um, Hayden is our oldest boy. He works yep. here as a lamey. Yep. Uh, he learned to fly in our chipmunk and still flies it. Uh, Riley is my middle boy. He um, he's a fitter and turner by trade. Yep. And he also learned to fly on the chipmunk and still flies it around. And Alexander, my younger son, who turns sixteen tomorrow, um, he also learned to fly on the chipmunk. Um, <laughs> so I was I was two out. <laughs> no, no, you were pretty right. Um, they've all learned to fly on the chipmunk, and it, it's been incredible. The when you actually put them in to the BT thirteen that we looked at today, yes. uh, they've flown that. Um, Scotty's. Tabner's Cessna 180, yeah. um, Piper Cub, um, the two oldest boys have flown the T6. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch, being, having been trained in a chipmunk right through, you put them in the other aeroplanes and they just fly the aeroplane like it's just another aeroplane. They don't get wound up about the fact it's a tail wheel and yep. it's really hard to keep straight and all that stuff. They just That's do as do. they've been doing. Um, so you can see where the old chipmunk as a tailwheel trainer, is an excellent trainer for that purpose. So, so they've been yeah. very lucky. So you'd, you'd say in general, if you come before you get to your T6, Chippy's mm. a good place to go for Oh, us. it's just, a, it, it just, and it, that's all they've started in. So they, yep. they really don't know any better. They, they also fly our Cessna 206 round. Yep. yep. Um, so, you know, flown normal airplanes as well. Yeah. But uh, they all fly very well. They've been well, well trained. Um, they've had good instructors. So, um, yeah, they'll go on and fly. Um, the middle boy's done his commercial subjects. Right. Um, the youngest one is keen as mustard. If he's not at school, he's at home flying the flight simulator around. Um, and Hayden's you now out here fixing aeroplanes and you know, flies them when he has the opportunity. So Are they looking at um, getting into the warbirds as well, flying warbirds at that later? Yeah, the they're track? all as keen as mustard. Um, so, yeah, we, whenever there's an opportunity to go flying, they all you know, line up. Uh, my wife, Kate, who used to ride in the front seat, has not seen the front seat of an aeroplane for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> she rides down the back now because the boys are all lined up for the front seat. So, um, but she doesn't mind. She's got four pilots in the family, so she's yeah, happy to be yeah. chauffeured around. That's a good, and it's a good legacy too that you've managed mm. to carry forward. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah. So it's not going to be long before you're trying to fight to get time in your, in, in your Harvard <laughs> or the Trojan. Yeah, well, there's already a fair there's a lineup of at least three of them for it. I can tell you, <laughs> they're, they're all pretty keen. So, oh, that's great. but it is great actually, and even with the chipmunk too. Uh, my father Keith learned to fly in tigers yep. and chipmunks, and uh, Keith regularly flies with the three boys. And you know, passes on his words of wisdom and yeah. what to do and what not to do. So they're learning from a man who's done it for a long time. There's a lot of listening in this game too, Pace. I mean, certainly my job is a lot. Is people think I get to write fun stuff, but most of what I do is talk to people, ask questions, listen, get corrected a lot, which is good. Um, and uh, you've been very helpful over the years, Steve, in terms of helping with lots of articles and work I've done. But yeah, listening is a critical thing, and then acting on it, isn't it? Mm, that's exactly right. That's why I got two ears in one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dave, have you got any more questions? No. Um, well, actually, the only other thing I was going to ask you about is the, the history of your very interesting-looking T28 there. Yes, our T28 was one of 16 that uh, my father Keith, Colin Pay, and Noel Vinson purchased from the Laotian Air Force in about 87 or 88. Uh, they were left up at Sang uh, Huang in northern Laos, and they'd simply been left there at the end of the war in about 74, yep. and had been sitting on the runway ever since. Okay. Um, Keith had been up to Laos in the uh, early 70s. Uh, a friend of his flew for Air America up there. So he went up and visited with him and went out riding around in porters and that sort of thing for a couple of days. So he sort of knew of T-28s. Um, Colin Pay also knew of them. And when they became available, we, those three gentlemen bought the 16 of them. Uh, we had them all shipped to Australia. Uh, we Everyone kept one out of that deal yeah. and then the rest were on sold. And as a result now there's about 10, I think about 10 of those left in Australia right. still fly. Yeah. Uh, the balance went to America. Um, Bo might have my numbers a little bit out here, but that's pretty close to the money. And yeah, they still fly around. We've we rebuilt our airplane from about 1990 through to about 91 or two. Uh, we then test flew it, and yeah, we've been flying air shows ever since. Right. And, and it's kind of got um like James Bond revolving number plates, hasn't it? There's a little little thing about the marking on the side of the aircraft. Can you yeah, describe that to us? It's a Laotian Air Force aeroplane, and on the side of the aeroplane, it has the star, the bars, and the three elephants on a pedestal, which is a Laotian national emblem at that time. And it has a frame around the outside of it. And when we first got it, we couldn't work out why, but we finally found out that the uh, Americans actually did the maintenance on those aeroplanes, or the heavy maintenance on the aeroplanes yep. in Thailand. But being Laotian aeroplanes, they couldn't fly them into Thailand. So what they would do is slide a square star in there, yep. and it had the bars each side of it, so it became an American aeroplane. They'd go down to Laos, do their maintenance, yep. uh, down to Thailand, do their maintenance, and then turn around and fly it back to Laos, and pull the American star out and go back to work again. <laughs> so, well, it did work, and it was just one of those strange things that I've never seen before. Yeah. But it obviously worked. And you've preserved it on the aircraft, so that mm. now the story's out there for people. That's exactly right. And when we rebuilt it, we intentionally repainted it back in the Laotian colours because that's where its history is, um, and flown it and talked to a lot of people since. I was actually very fortunate at an air show in Bankstown about probably 10 or 12 years ago. There was a um, Laotian fellow there, and he was there with his uh, son. And he just asked, because we were just part of the flight yep. line there. I think I was putting the plugs in one afternoon. And he said, oh, can I show my son the aeroplane? And I'm always keen for people to look at aeroplanes, yep. you know, within reason. I said, sure, can't jump on up. So put the son in the aeroplane, he stood on the wing there, and I happened to be doing something nearby. And he started explaining to his son where everything worked, how it all worked. I thought, hang on, there's something going on here. And he'd actually flown T-28s and Laos. Right. And we quizzed him at length, and he couldn't tell us how many hours he'd done. He just started flying them and just kept flying them. <laughs> um, about four to six sorties a day. Wow. And they just kept flying them. Um, and there was no there was no discussion of hours. You know, he couldn't tell me how many hours he'd done. Uh, he couldn't tell me how sorties because they just went to work. Yeah. And he flew them from about 72, I think he learned to fly, and flew them right up to about 76 when they were last flown. And he knew, like he did know all about it. He knew yeah. what all the armament switches were for. He talked about flying them full, how they didn't go very well, which yeah. they wouldn't, at 12,500 yeah. pounds. And yeah, it was just amazing. Yeah, um, that would be. And he was the only guy I've ever met that has flown them. That's, that's great. I mean, I've talked to a lot of the Warbird guys who've met veterans who were flying the World War II mm. aircraft or maybe Vietnam stuff, but 
that's that's something very obscure, really, isn't it? Oh, it was. It was, and it was just a sheer luck thing that he happened to stand there in the line and just happened. To, I happened to be there, and he happened to ask. Yeah. Um, and I'm thrilled that he did ask. Absolutely, and, and that must have made his day and really interesting for his son. Yeah, I think his son was most interested, and um, yeah, the father was interested to show him as well. So, Great, it terrific. was quite amazing. Bringing history to life. Well, it was, and that's really that's what we do with these aeroplanes, and uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to fly them, and that's really cool. But really, we're here to um, bring them to life, to remember what people did in them, and to show them to people to what they actually do. So it, it's really the veterans is is what I've got a soft spot for, and especially the Spitfire flying's been really mm. good because uh, it's getting a lot less and less now. But over the years, um, you've often had veterans turn up and they've been thrilled to see it fly because they haven't seen one fly for 70 years. And yeah, I make a habit of making sure they have a good look at the aeroplane. Um, if they're able to get into it, which not many, very many can now, I'm more than happy to help them in there. And you get some amazing stories mm. and they really, really enjoy it. And that's why I like doing it. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It's been great to sit here and have a chat with you about your interesting flying career. Absolutely. That's right, Steve. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure to talk to you both. Cheers. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> Ha 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 